Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland area attorney and Republican factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, hey, Mike. hey Jay, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm, I'm better than last time. Well, that, that, that's good. Uh, I've, I'm doing well myself, and we obviously have a lot to talk about today. It's been a very busy week, but before we get to our first story, I have a correction to issue. Uh, Back in Politics Guys episode 143, and this is the show I did a few weeks ago with Susan Simpson from the 45th, um, and then actually in the show you and I, Jay, did that aired a few days later, I referred to a VA medical system that had serious problems with quality and wait times compared to the private sector. At least that was my claim. Uh, And that was sort of, I thought, the conventional wisdom. Well, listener Brian Kay tweeted to me that uh, the data didn't actually support that view. And he actually was was generous enough to do some research and send along some links that supported his argument, which was great. Thank you, Brian. And, you know, I looked him over, I did some additional digging, and I actually came to the same conclusion that, that Brian did. I was wrong, and he was right on this. Based on the data I saw, uh, VA quality and wait times aren't actually worse than those in the private sector on average. So I, I wanted to thank you, Brian, for pointing that out. And I always hate it when people do corrections, they kind of bury them at the end of a show or some little little area. And so I wanted to make, the, make this our first thing. Uh, also, Brian suggested that a look at the VA might make for an excellent politics guys uh, special episode you know and I think that's a that's an interesting idea and uh, in uh, in our copious free time maybe we can put that together but you know maybe sometime this summer that would be something that would be worth doing all right thanks for setting the statement Brian <laughs> all right so uh you know last week president trump said he planned to pull us troops out of syria uh, this week President Trump uh, authorized the U.S. to take the lead in a joint missile attack with allies Great Britain and France on Syria's chemical weapons infrastructure in retaliation for an alleged chemical weapon attack by uh, Syrian government forces on anti-government rebels in the city of Douma. And the uh, the attack, uh, I again, this is kind of just coming in basically as we record the show, but hit, I believe, uh, three sites that were part of the Syrian chemical weapons infrastructure. And again, this was in response to uh, Assad's attack on his own people, these rebels that left 40 dead and hundreds or more actually suffering symptoms of chemical agent exposure. And and of course, both Syria and, and Russia, its key ally, denied any responsibility. And not only that, but they questioned whether there was any chemical attack at all and said that, well, you know, in any event, the only ones with chemical weapons there are the rebel forces. Uh, so and, and now in the wake of the U.S., Great Britain and France response, Russia's calling for a meeting of the U.N. Security Council. Uh, then Israel, of course, got involved as well earlier in the week. Uh, they're very concerned with growing influence of uh Iran, which is another Syrian ally in the region, they responded with an airstrike of their own on Iranian assets in Syria, which reportedly left 14 people dead. And while all this is going on, there was a team of inspectors from the International Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons. They are still headed toward a, actually, I believe are in Syria at this point. And there was some talk that maybe they, uh, the U.S. and allied forces would wait to get their report before launching an attack. But clearly that hasn't happened. But apparently they're still looking to go in and, and try to see what exactly happened. So... That's, I think, the situation as as we know it right now, as of Saturday Saturday morning. So, Jay, uh, there's a lot to, to discuss here, and you know, I, I'm particularly interested in knowing if you think uh, number one that President Trump's earlier statement about pulling out may have you know, emboldened Assad to launch this attack, and some people are claiming that, and also whether the strike was the right move. Uh, you know, as far as the the statements <clears throat> emboldening Assad, uh, I think that's a possibility, uh, and I, I think that's obviously the look. That's a concern that the conservatives voiced uh, rightfully uh, during the Obama administration when he drew the red line and then then didn't follow up on it, um, and also when uh, we withdrew troops from from Iraq. And, and, you know, with the, hey, we're withdrawing and, and sort of giving notice to the other side that you can commence operations now. Um, so, so I think it's, that's not an unreasonable um, uh, conclusion to draw, uh, that, that Trump's statements on, on that emboldened him. It's, you know, it's impossible to tell because I'm sure there's a lot of other 
things that go into uh, uh, you know Assad's calculations uh, in terms of you know just what the situation is on the ground and his own tactical stuff and uh, the Russians and all that. But uh, uh, no, I, I I wouldn't let's put it this way. I wouldn't disagree with someone who said that uh, Trump's sort of rash statements, which is which is you know a problem because this is sort of exactly the thing that Trump said he wasn't going to do. And didn't he, yeah, during, um, during the campaign, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I seem to recall Donald Trump saying, you know, it's, it, it's stupid to telegraph our intentions give, give to the plan. enemy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. yet he went ahead and, and did that. So I, I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't and know. And then, well, but then, I mean, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to credit him for the, um, uh, you know, the do over and, and um, he then, then said, he's going, you're, we're going to launch a, a, a missile attack on Syria uh, at which point then people criticized him for, there you go, giving away the plan again, at which he backtracked and said, well, I'm not saying we're going to launch one or not or when it's going to happen. Uh, and then he went and launched one. So I mean, sort of, I, I guess, you know, he ends up uh, in the same place at the end of the day. Um, look, as far as the, the military strike goes, and we always get lots of, of anger and stuff anytime we support any kind of military strike, but I'm going to go ahead and, and, and support it. Uh, uh, yeah, this is if, if we want to have a, a system that honors international law and uh, human rights and and uh, the idea that, that these weapons are, are simply beyond the pale, uh, then this is what we have to do. And, and I think it's good. We're doing it with allies. Uh, this is not a go it alone. Um, and, and the, you know, if the, you look at the people who are upset by it, it's very much the Russians. Um so again, I think that that belies the you know Trump is a Russian pawn argument. Um, you know, I, I think what's going to be important is is the follow up. Uh, if we continue to degrade the chemical weapon uh, capability, and again, I'm I'm I have no idea, you know, what kind of capabilities there are, where they are, how much is needed to degrade it, uh, what other steps we need to do to take down, say, uh, you know, air force, air that sort of thing. Um, because look, the, the the fact of the matter is, we'll blow stuff up. The Russians and the Iranians will rebuild it. Uh, we need to show that there's going to be a commitment to continually uh, keep that that capability um, downgraded. So, so that remains to be seen. But uh, look, I, I think standing up for a uh, a principle that you announced and saying we're not this will not stand. Uh, I I think that's that's healthy foreign policy. Um, and again, particularly when, when what we're talking about is a regime that is attacking its own uh, citizens and civilians uh, with chemical weapons. Yeah, I agree. Uh, as a general rule, I, I don't think we should get involved in civil wars, but we can't uh, allow the normalization of chemical weapons use. That's just beyond the pale. And so I think it was, it seems to me, based on what we know, the right and appropriate response but but I will say, and this is this is something that troubles me, and, and it even troubled me during the Obama administration. Is I don't think that it's uh, not not that the Constitution necessarily matters to a lot of people, but I don't think this was constitutionally okay. Uh, my read and the read of you know a number of legal experts is that the president actually doesn't have the constitutional authority to launch uh, strikes like this. Also, like the strike that. Uh, President Obama launched in in Libya and 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 you know, there the, are a couple the others. The strikes that the, the strikes that Clinton launched in uh, uh, Serbia, <clears throat> the strikes that uh, Reagan launched in Libya. Yeah, there's there's no. I mean, this is not a yeah, not a new yeah, thing. There's no uh, authorization for use of military force here that applies. Now, uh, General Mattis came out with some sort of what I thought was a lame sort of explanation. Of, well, it's sort of related to this and that, and and I, I don't think it washes. And to me, this is just another example of Congress abrogating its responsibility to take the lead on this. And, and you know, no one wants to be seen as, you know, uh, uh, not being willing to stand up for chemical weapons use. But this is where, you know, this is what the, what the, what the framers intended is they didn't want a situation where one man, one person could, you know, essentially commit our, our forces to, a, to an attack in another country. Now, it's different when it's responding to uh, an imminent threat. Certainly, and and Mattis, I think, made some suggestions. Well, chemical weapons are a threat, and blah blah blah. But there's, that's, there's, there's, there's not, I, th I think that's that's not a that's that's not a uh, uh, 
a frivolous argument. But it's not frivolous. It's but in it, my mind. I, I, yeah. I'm saying I, I'm not saying necessarily it's a winning argument, but I, I don't think it's yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's not, not. It's yeah. not nothing. Yeah. Right. I think it goes against pretty clearly what the Constitution uh, and what the framers intended on this, and certainly it wouldn't. It shouldn't have been difficult to you know have a debate in Congress on this and get an authorization for use of military force in this very limited thing. And I think it would be good going forward to say I could see crafting one saying that you know Congress giving the president authority to launch limited strikes on Syrian chemical weapons infrastructure and so forth. And I think that would give this a lot more legitimacy and it would encourage the sort of debate on the use of our force overseas in, in a way that I think is very healthy, very healthy in a democracy. No, I, I agree with you on that, actually. Um, uh, I, although, although given the, the time frame, I think that might be a little difficult, too, in terms of, although, I mean, that was like a week or so. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's appropriate that Congress uh, essentially has some skin in the game, if you will. Um, and, and, you know, there's also, there's, there's a funny distinction uh, and it's it's not a constitutional distinction. It's just something that, uh, as a matter of practice, we sort of come to accept uh, things like uh, airstrikes, drone strikes, you know, things that are not committing troops to the ground uh, as as being within presidential purview to do whatever, uh, as again, as opposed to committing actual uh, ground forces. Um, I, I, I'm not I'm not saying that it's, it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's a it's a distinction that sort of is out there. Yeah. And I think certainly Congress going forward could – there's nothing that would prevent Congress from, from putting together a, a, an authorization for subsequent – you know, any necessary subsequent sure. strikes. Sure, no-fly zones and yeah. that sort of thing that, that have been done before, yeah. Especially given it seems like our, our policy is – and I think it's a good policy – to respond to any use of chemical weapons with – some sort of display of force designed to degrade or eliminate that capability. So I think this would be entirely appropriate, and uh, I am I am calling on Congress to do that. I don't think they will, and I'm you know, geez, there there are enough reasons to be disappointed in Congress, but this is just one more. All right, moving on. You know, uh, I, I thought this would originally be our top story, uh, but our second story: House Speaker Paul Ryan dropped a bombshell this week when he announced that he would not seek re-election so that he can spend more time with his family. Um, you know, this has been a, a not very well kept secret for a while now that Ryan, who had practically been dragged kicking and screaming to the speakership from his post as a ways and means chair in 2015. I mean, he was looking to call it quits, but the assumption was that he'd stay on until after 2018. So he could use his fairly considerable fundraising uh, clout to help the Republicans try to retain control of the house. And Ryan's retirement is the latest and without a doubt the, the highest profile of an unusually large number of Republican retirements. Uh, right now, I believe it's 27 House Republicans have either announced their retirement or have resigned from office at this point compared to only 11 Democrats. Uh, so, Jay, what do you make of Ryan's retirement? Um, well, it, it, uh, it saddens me, actually, <clears throat> uh, a, a great deal. Um, uh, Paul Ryan, in many ways, represented uh, the wing of the party that that I sort of grew up with and support. Uh, that being the the idea of the you know Jack Kemp um, uh, tax cutting, prosperity raising uh, Republicans. Um, the nice uh, Republicans. And, well, I, I mean, <clears throat> I'm assuming for that because again, I, I know there are there are plenty of people who are have been critical and and who people I also consider nice Republicans. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, good, good Republicans, um, that have been critical in terms of, of Ryan, maybe not being strong enough on some issues. Um, and I get that. I mean, to me that, that comes down more to, to tactics, uh, as opposed to, you know, ultimate ideology of where do you want to go? It's just more a question of how do you get there? Um, but look, I, I think Paul Ryan and I, and I don't, I've never, I've never met the man, but by all reports, he is a, uh, a good and decent human being, um, uh, and I think his his record shows that uh, he's he's done his best to uh, one be a a you know strong voice for for republicanism uh, for conservatism, uh, but at the same time uh, he's you know not someone who is um, 
he was described, I read somewhere, as, as again, like a, a happy warrior, uh, which is, you know, sort of a you know, Reagan-esque sort of, sort of uh, uh, term that, uh, you know, he, he reached out to work with people where he could, uh, but he was not going to uh, cave on, on principles. Uh, he was willing to cave on tactics uh, occasionally <clears throat> um, and understood maybe what was possible and what was not possible. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm going to um, uh, miss him. You know, the other, the other piece that this was overlooked uh, a couple of years ago, he had a, a lot of proposals that were, you know, anti-poverty uh, proposals about how do we create jobs, create prosperity. Uh, and, and that's, again, the Republican Party that I grew up with and the Republican Party that I sort of signed on for. Um, uh, so, I mean, there, were, there was uh, one, and I, I believe it was the Wall Street Journal that that could have been National Review saying, listen, if if we're now at the point that Paul uh, Paul Ryan uh, is is non-representative of the Republican Party, that just shows sort of the the state that we are in. Yeah, and, and there there have been, I mean, a spate of articles about that. You know, uh, Politico, Politico had an article, the tragedy of Paul Ryan. Uh, Vox had an article, Trump has won the fight over the Republican soul, that sort of thing. And and you know, you mentioned the response on on the right. The, the narrative on the left about Paul Ryan has been very different for a while. Uh, I think it's overblown, to say the least. And uh, that narrative is essentially that, in a way, Paul Ryan is actually worse than someone like a Donald Trump because he cleverly hides He his, looks like a nice guy. He yeah. looks like a nice guy. He acts like he's a reasonable policy person. But that's just a cover for his deep hatred of the poor. Yeah. And, and to me, that that's the sort of thing that just— Drives me absolutely nuts. And I posted a thing in the Facebook page about some hysterical article from Vox about which is essentially this sort of thing. And it's just that just suggesting that, well, clearly, if, if Paul Ryan wants to, to cut this program, it's because, you know, he has it in for poor people, which I think right. is just a he he has some ideas about what government should do and the proper role and how best to help people that I think are fundamentally misguided. But uh to make that jump from fundamentally misguided to, well, obviously he's evil, I, I think is just as ridiculous as those people on the far right who say, well, clearly liberals hate America. I've, that's, that to me, that kind of thing is always driven me nuts. And of course, to be, you know, to put my cards on the table here, I mean, I, I was, I grew up as sort of a Jack Kemp Republican type of person, Jack Kemp, Bob Dole, that sort of thing. And so Paul Ryan is sort of in that tradition. And I agree with both the voices on the left and the right who say that it's really sad that those sort of policy-oriented folks who don't traffic in the kind of white identity politics sort of thing uh, can't don't seem to be getting a whole lot of traction today in the Republican Party. And I think it's uh, it's much healthier if there are more Republicans like Paul Ryan and we hash out policy differences as opposed to, to playing this sort of, uh, you know, inflamed rhetoric, identity politics sort of thing that Ryan was never good at. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, Ryan was a horrible person because he went along with Donald Trump. And, and yeah, I understand that argument. But also, I think Paul Ryan did the calculation and said, listen, I want to get tax reform through. I want to try to do what I can to make good things happen in the environment that has been created. And so, sure, when Donald Trump was a candidate, he was very anti-Trump. Then he was the president. It was like, oh, well, we got to work with the guy. And people, what are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. And is that hypocrisy? And, and, and I would say, again, I, I've, I've you know said for a while, the, the uh, tax reform piece is not necessarily a, a Trump piece. That I think that's, that's a piece of legislation that you would have gotten from any Republican president. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I agree. So it's, it's not, that's not a particularly Trump, uh, uh thing. <clears throat> and going, going back though, I mean, the left does have a thing of always saying that the Republican state, I'm trying to think back to, um, gosh, who was it, uh, in, uh, 96 where they had the, um, uh, the ads of them pushing, pushing grandma off the cliff in the wheelchair, uh, uh over, over the issue at that point was, uh, would uh, Medicare grow by, um, you know, uh, you know, essentially percent re restricting the percentage of growth of Medicare, which it would still be growing. Uh, so, I mean, that, you know, that's that's sort of. Um, and the right does the same thing. Like I said, the liberals hate America. Uh, well, no, yeah. it's, it's enough suppose. But, you know, another thing I, I wanted to uh, talk about in terms of uh, Paul Ryan is it's interesting because he's the sort of 
I mean, he's been in Congress for two decades now, but he's only 48. Uh, and so he's a career, he's a, you know, a career politician, obviously. And he's the sort of person that sort of the new type of Republicans have taken over. They'll sort of, uh, you know, have a career in business, then go into Congress, kind of the sort of folks you associate with the Tea Party, kind of the antithesis of that sort of thing. So he's not their sort of person from background, from the way he approaches things from and so forth. Yeah, yeah, temperament, all that kind of stuff. And one final point I want to make on that is, you know, a lot of folks are talking about what's going to happen in 2018. And, you know, I have to say, you take a look at the at the retirements and compare the Democrats and the Republicans. There's a reason why we're seeing this, certainly. And you would think that the people who would have the best sense of the lay of the land would be the people who are actually serving in Congress. And the fact that, like I said, 27 House Republicans are are out now and only 11 Democrats, that, that says a lot about what the, the people who are probably most in the know think what's going to happen come November. Uh, yes, yes and no. Although I will, I will throw out an alternative uh, hypothesis on that. And that is, and this is, I think, goes to differences in sort of just the Republican and, and Democratic uh, psyches. Um, you know, Republicans typically, and this is this is not true of all, but but they view they don't view government as the end all be all, and this is what they have to do and and where they have to be. Paul Ryan accepted. Uh, well, <clears throat> no, I, I'm no, I'm saying that there are are a lot of uh, Republicans who, uh, you know, on the one hand, all right, a member of Congress, I think, makes what one hundred fifty thousand dollars, one hundred thirty thousand, something uh, like that. A little more than that. I think it's uh, I think it's one hundred and seventy something. But still, okay. a lot of these folks make, could make a lot more in the private sector. Right. Exactly. That's my point. Is that that sounds like a lot of money, um, uh, but but actually, it's it's less than you think uh, when you consider and all, all you have to do, and uh, if you figure out the hours worked for that for that money. And the fact that you're you're you know uh, likely to get you know almost get fired every two years, um, so I, I think there there are plenty of people who who have a lot of skills could do a lot of things and especially in this environment when they're sort of uh, dealing with you know Trump on one side uh, the Tea Party on another Democrats on on another uh, there is there is I I can understand the temptation of saying. Forget this. I'm just gonna I'm gonna go get a regular job uh, or an irregular job, um, you know, and, and live my life. Because I, I again I think that's that's something um, a lot of Republicans make that choice. I don't think I don't think Democrats uh, uh, tend to just just because the there's the sense of hey if I'm not in the government well that's okay I don't I don't have to be so well yeah I think there's there's some truth to that though I think also you know part of the calculus and we see this with Democrats too when it when there are signs of a Republican wave election that they say well do I want to be in the majority or in the minority and it's it's a whole lot less fun to be in the minority at least if you want to get something done and so we've seen this throughout congressional history, where when the signs point toward one party taking control, a lot of folks sure. in the other party say, this is, I don't want to be in the minority. So um, I right. think I'll just go and do something else. But And it's it's better to find a new job while you have a job. Um, exactly. So, I mean, that's, no, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not discounting that. Yeah. But, yeah. All right. Well, moving on, uh, the other uh, another big story this week is Facebook co-founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Well, he was on the hot seat testifying on two days for over nine hours total before both the House and the Senate. Now, he started with the Senate, where he answered questions from both the Commerce and Judiciary Committees. And then a day later, he moved on to the House, where he testified before the Energy and Commerce Committee. Now, Zuckerberg, who he brought in a bunch of experts to prep him for the congressional grilling, I'd say he did everything in the abject the policy, abject apology before Congress playbook. I mean, he repeatedly apologized. He took full responsibility. He looked and acted suitably contrite most of the time. He wasn't overly defensive or combative, and he promised to make amends. Um, but to me, this was largely political theater that doesn't mean a whole lot. And I'll explain why. There's no legislation that's going to come out of this, at least not until mid-2019 at the very earliest, and everyone knows that. Um, what I think is far more important than all these demonstrations of deep concern from senators and representatives that we saw during these hearings is the EU's more 
much more stringent internet privacy regulations, which go into effect on May 25th. And okay, they don't apply to the U.S. Zuckerberg gave a sort of a sort of a promise that Facebook would implement EU regulations for U.S. users, though he left himself enough wiggle room to get out of that if need be. But what's more important, at least I think, than his promise is the fact that because the EU is so large and the EU rules also apply to any data processing entities that are located in the EU, and Facebook has a huge one in Ireland, uh, it might actually be difficult for them to have one set of rules for the US and another for the European Union, though. We'll find out about that. So, Jay, what did you take away from Zuckerberg's testimony? Oh, I, I think I agree with you pretty much on on most most parts. It was just sort of the standard uh, show. Um, uh, I, I don't think it it changes anything. I think Zuck. I mean Zuckerberg. I think did fine. Uh, I, I think he probably helped. You know his his profile. Um, but uh, I'm yeah. I don't think a lot of this a lot comes out of this. And you know, here's I'm I'm still and and people will. You you can call me sort of a, a caveman here on this, but um, I, I'm still not uh, seeing as much of the the threat uh, that you know. The, again, the, 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 to me, this this whole thing seems to be see fairly exaggerated. Uh, that this is stuff that Facebook has been doing for years, um, but uh, you know the the problem is that well now Trump used it uh, again when Facebook was was using an app which was exploiting the same data for the Obama campaign. It was, it was brilliant campaigning, um, uh, by, by the, uh, by the Democrats. Um, my sense is had Hillary Clinton won this election, uh, Mark Zuckerberg would not have been appearing before Congress. Um, but, but regardless, um, I don't well, know. I, I, I don't we, we've had this discussion before. I, I just, I am not, um, you know, in terms of, of, uh, you know, Facebook trying to sell me stuff um, and and or influence me. Um, I, I just don't think it works that well. Well, you know, I, I disagree with you in part. I, I think that the issue really isn't so much whether, you know, it's Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. I think the issue is that uh, it's the authorization is your data. And well, well no, I, I not, would, yeah. well, I meant I meant the fact that a, a hostile foreign power uh, was attempting to use this platform to influence an election. And I don't care if they used it to influence mm -hmm. the election toward my candidate or not. And there are both plenty of Republicans, you know, Democrats and Republicans who are concerned about that. And, and rightly so, I'd say. But but to me, I guess one, one again, I'm, I'm going to go back to that, though, look, that if if um, if these these ads that if we're talking just about the Russian Facebook ads, 50 percent of which ran after the election, um, after the election uh, and most none of them had anything to say about elect or not elect uh, one person or another. Um, and had they been been um, uh, put out there by by some American, uh, would have been perfectly legitimate, perfectly protected by by free speech, uh, and to all accounts had really no effect on the election. Um, so, so I mean, to me, that's sort of like what's you know. Let, let, no, let, I, so. But well, let me look, look at it this way. Just because I think there are two issues here. Number one is the issue of a hostile foreign power trying to use uh, the, the social media, particularly Facebook, to influence an election. The second question is how effective was that? Uh, and I, I would certainly agree with you that I don't think it had overall much of an impact. But that said, certainly we want to make we want to do what we can to make sure that you know, actors like Russia aren't able to use these platforms to set up fake accounts to try to influence our, our elections in a way that's not okay. Um, and I, what if, I, what if they were to, what if they were to, uh, send a mailing? What's the difference? You mean, well, I, I think the difference is that we don't know, we don't know where those mailings were coming from. So if it said, Hey, this is a mailing from Russia and we're telling right. you that you, so I think that's the big part of it is that I think a lot of people, if they'd see these messages saying, Oh, by the way, this is from, you know, Vladimir Putin, uh, from Moscow. Hey, I'd like you to vote for, you know, Donald Trump or something like that. That's different than creating a fake organization, uh, literally fake news uh, to to try to influence something. So I think that is the real issue here. Uh, now, to me, though, 
that is less of a concern, uh, though it's certainly a concern. The greater concern to me, and I think a number of members of Congress rep, uh, recognize this in their questions, maybe a minority, I don't know, is that loss of privacy is kind of baked into Facebook's business model. I mean, that's yeah. what they do. And there were a couple there were a couple of questions that kind of got at to that. And, and basically what all Zuckerberg could say is, well, this is how we make money, you know? And I think last week on the show, uh, Trey and Ken had a great discussion on this. And essentially, people are willing to give up their privacy for this network. And I, I think, though, Ken made some good arguments, and a number of other people have, is that people don't necessarily understand the information that's being used and how it's used and how much Facebook knows about them and so forth. They might feel differently if they knew that, basically. And, and I think there's something to that. If you take a look at these agreements, we've all clicked on a whole bunch of these agreements and they're, you know, pages and pages of, uh, you know, I, I'd hate to say legal gobbledygook, uh, but essentially they're, you know, these things where people don't really know what they're entering into. There's the question of what's called informed consent as opposed to just consent, basically. And, and I don't think that's going to change because, of course, the value that we have for Facebook is all the information they can, you know, hoover up about us, basically. And that's, you know, that that's why we're valuable to them. And they're not going to want to change that business model because they can't make money any other way. So that's not going to change. And that, to me, is the longer term, more serious threat. And, you know, I think I might have said this before, maybe it's because I grew up in a generation where privacy was still sort of a thing. Uh, and, and, and maybe for younger folks, that sort of expectation of privacy isn't such a big deal. I don't know. But but to me, it, it, it's a little troubling. But that said, of course, I'm on Facebook every single day. So I guess I'm willing to make that trade off too. Yeah. See, I, again, I've, I've cut down my Facebook uh, use dramatically, um, not relation to any to privacy or Russians or anything like that. I'm just, I don't know, just, just not into it that much anymore. Um, so, I mean, maybe, uh, again, uh, it's maybe I have a sort of a strange immunity to this, but uh, <clears throat> I, I, I get the idea that, that this is, I guess, I, I guess maybe I've always understood that that's what they're, they're selling is my data. Um, and if I get uh, ads that are maybe more targeted to me more than, than uh, uh, you know, random ads that I might see in a newspaper, um, well, okay. But, but again, it's still, it's, it's, it's not mind control. Um, uh, and, and advertisers have been doing that for forever. The other piece I think is, is, is interesting. And again, I'm, I'm a little bit of a techno skeptic on, on some of these things. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, was telling me there's a, a program you can look up, you know, I guess the, what pay, Facebook thinks, uh, of your, your partisan identity. Um, and she is a, a, you know, pretty, you know, conservative Republican, um, uh, not necessarily activist Republican or anything like that, but, you know, I think has, has voted the Republican ticket for forever. Um, and, uh, Facebook had her pegged as being a, a liberal Democrat. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm, again, that's just obviously one small example. Maybe they get it right on a whole lot of these other things. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I think, I think sometimes these, these algorithms and all that for is, 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 uh, as much as we make of, of this, that they can figure all this stuff out. They're not, they're not always that good now. And now that's not to say they're not going to get better in the future. Uh, but. Well, this is, this kind of gets in, it's just a little off subject, but that well, but what the heck, well, uh, we can, we can talk about this a little bit. This gets into why, uh, weirdly enough, I'm not a libertarian, uh, because it seems to me the sort of argument that you're, you're making is one that I hear a lot of libertarians make is that, well, you know, we, people aren't going to be affected by this and so forth because I'm not, and my friends aren't. And I always think, well, yeah, but you are in the top, you know, five, maybe 1% in terms of your uh, understanding of how media works. Half, half percent, probably. Yeah, you know, may, maybe even that. And so I think, you know, and, and that to me is, is the real issue is so it's, it's important that we don't make our judgments about what's appropriate and not based on what we and people who see the world and have the advantages super of education. Super <laughs> okay. Like you said it. No, I, I didn't. No, I'm, no, no, I mean, I, I, I get that. And I, I thank you. I appreciate uh, that, that you, you think that highly of me. 
Um, but I, I think people have more common sense than you give them credit for. Yeah, well, and that, that's kind of that fundamental argument is that the people, you know, left to their own will make these right decisions. And I've just exactly read- that's that, that that comes right down to it, doesn't? It? That's why I'm I'm I believe in freedom, and uh, you believe that the people must be controlled. Uh, good. Well, you know, I, I guess I've read too much in terms of how systematic biases work and, and, and manipulation and the, a lot of the research in cognitive psychology and behavioral economics. And so I just can't be as I just can't be as uh, kind of cavalier uh, about it. I would like to have that view, but I just based on the evidence that I've seen, I just can't. So. All right. Uh, before we get to our next story, we'd like to thank our newest supporter, Sean, who's our newest sustaining monthly supporter on Patreon. So thank, thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean. We really do appreciate your generous support of the show. And I want to say, it, you know, it's been a, a crazy spring semester for me for a lot of reasons. I took on some new classes, decided I would completely redo them. And that was really dumb of me. But the semester is coming to a close for me. Uh, and I'm hoping over the summer to have the time to figure out a way to uh, show our appreciation to supporters, aside from these shout outs, which of course we'll continue to do. So if you have any thoughts or ideas, you know, about what you'd like, whether you're a current financial supporter or a potential one, uh, please let us know. You can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. And when you do make a pledge of financial support for the show, we would love to include a message from you in our shout out. So if there's anything you'd like to pass along, let us know. You can do that through Patreon or PayPal, or just send us an email again, mailpoliticsguys.com and send us your message there. So Sean, if there's anything you'd like us to pass along, just drop us a line this week and we will include it next week. And of course, you know, listener support is what makes this show possible. So if you'd like to join Sean and all of our other great Politics Guys supporters, just go to politicsguys.com slash support or just go to politicsguys.com and you can see the support thing there on the site. Thanks a lot. All right, moving on. Uh, early this week, FBI agents raided the Manhattan office of President Trump's longtime attorney and fixer, Michael Cohn, who's reportedly under investigation for bank fraud, wire fraud, and campaign finance law violation related to the 2016 payment Cohen made to porn star Stormy Daniels in exchange for her silence concerning a sexual relationship that she said she had with Trump in 2006. Now, my understanding of the law here is that Cohen could legally have essentially bought off Daniels if his intent was simply to, say, protect the reputation of Donald Trump or to prevent uh, uh, his wife, uh, Trump's wife, that is, from finding out about the affair, because I'm sure that, you know, she doesn't know that her husband has affairs. Uh, Another story. Anyway, but it only becomes a crime if he made the payment in an attempt to influence the election. And, And I'm guessing that intent may be difficult to prove unless, of course, there's some communication between Cohen and Trump to that effect. And it said that actually one of the things that was taken was uh, uh, audio uh, recording. So, uh, Jay, you're you're our resident attorney. How big of a deal is an FBI raid that seizes attorney-client communications? It's a very big deal, actually. And I, I think this is really troubling uh, on a lot of, a lot of levels. Um, now again, I, I I can't I can't speak to the bank fraud or the wire fraud um, claims or those, those rationales because I, I gotta tell you I'm, I'm not I don't really understand exactly what it is that they're uh, accusing him of. Um, on the the campaign finance piece of it, uh, again, this is something that no one has ever been um, uh, convicted of. This idea of of the paying off a third party. One third party paying off another third party uh, amounts to a, a in-kind contribution, essentially unreported in-kind contribution to a campaign. Uh, John Edwards was essentially charged with this uh, and and was was not convicted. So I, you know, I, I think when you've got a a thing of you're looking to prosecute a crime uh, which has never been prosecuted before, uh, which may or may not uh, even be a a a uh, a crime. Um, there ought to be a really high bar uh, to to break into the attorney-client privilege. Uh, I'm not saying that there could never be cases uh, when you you can't have a raid uh, that would seize attorney-client materials. Um, the attorney-client privilege does not cover fraud. It does not cover preparation to uh, uh, engage in criminal conduct and and so forth. So there are exceptions. Um, but this this strikes me very much as an overreach when <clears throat> the initial thing that to do could have been to uh, send a subpoena 
uh, at which point uh, Cohen uh, could have, would have, uh, resisted the subpoena and you go to court and you sort out what's uh, uh, what's privileged, what's not, and, and uh, you know, what, what documents have to be turned over. Now, now in that case, you know, I, I would want, I would think that maybe the concern would be that uh, documents would be, would be destroyed sure. or you know, made unavailable. And it seems to me also, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, that this is not the sort of thing that you get authorization for just on a whim. In other words, it's not like the FBI said, hey, do you mind if we go ahead and raid this attorney-client communications? And, and the Justice Department said, you know, because this went all the way up to the top, essentially say, oh, yeah, that's fine, sure. I mean, this there had to be some sort of you know, good reason given, presumably, before this authorization was given to go ahead and do this, one would one would think, and I also well, wanted- one, would, one would think, and I, again, that's that's what concerns me is uh, I I wasn't in the uh, in the court when they went in to get the warrant, um, so I'm I'm concerned, and look, this is this is something that I, my concern is in the legal system there there seems to be perhaps a double standard uh, for Americans and uh, Americans named Donald Trump. Um, it's sort of like if we need, we need to get a warrant on, on someone because of this, this, this. And I think in most cases there is a healthy skepticism. If we need to get a warrant and it relates to Donald Trump, but granted, I mean, that's, that's But what, you don't know that. I mean, you're, you're making it. I don't, I don't. Okay. I, don't. I just want to be but clear I, all, on that. all I can say is, all I can say is, uh, this type of thing is extraordinary. Uh, and and ought to require an extraordinary showing. Yeah, and and I I mean that's and and I guess I guess you know here here's the thing if I were the if I were the magistrate judge, um who who granted this my questions would have been, all right uh you know why can't you just subpoena this, and they would have to say well we're concerned that they'll destroy it okay what evidence do you have that they'll destroy it, uh what protections can you get, uh to to prevent against that destruction for example you can say. Uh, we want to, you know, uh, you you can do what's called imaging the hard drive, and you can protect that, and you get that to the court, and then they can sort through what's going on. You can tell if files have been erased. Um, there, what I'm saying is, I think there are a lot of other procedural ways that could have been done that could have preserved uh, attorney-client safeguards, uh, could have gotten the the Justice Department the information it's looking for. Um, but they they chose they chose the drama. Well, but again, and and let me let me be clear on this. You are you are making an assumption based on what you do not know. In other words, they right. could have the, these questions presumably. They could have been asked. These all could have been asked, and they all could have said yes. We have really good reason to believe he's going to destroy this evidence, and we got to grab it right yeah. away. There, are, I mean, there are two narratives here, and both of them are based on complete speculation. The one narrative is, well, like you said, there's one standard for Donald Trump, and another standard for everyone else. In other words. Key figures in the Justice Department and the FBI are out to get the president. That that's one narrative. The other narrative is well, there's some very good reason why they are pursuing this, and everything has been done on the up and up. And so part of this, I think, is is you know to what extent do you believe that the Justice Department uh, and FBI are you know staffed with people at the top levels who have uh, integrity? Uh, and certainly Donald Trump and his supporters have good reason to push back against that uh, that uh, integrity in the Justice Department and FBI narrative. And I would say that uh, I would argue that uh, we have even better reason to push back against the integrity of the president narrative. But uh, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I, I and I'll tell you where I where I'm coming from. And this is uh, I had the opportunity to I was at a conference a couple years ago at the Sixth Circuit Judicial Conference where I heard from they had a panel on the Ted Stevens prosecution. And they had the judge uh, from the Ted Stevens uh, case. Yeah. <clears throat> and and um, and this was a judge who was a Clinton appointee. Um, <clears throat> and this is where the the uh, Department of Justice was essentially found in contempt for failing to turn over exculpatory materials uh, and that they lied to the court uh, about this. Uh, and and this, you know, I'll tell you, the, the, the book and, I'm, and I, I'm, I apologize, I forget the author. Uh, it's absolutely chilling. And in this this panel discussion, we had members of the Justice Department and the judge, uh, judge saying how absolutely ridiculous this was, this happened. And the Justice Department said, yeah, these things happen and they'll probably happen again. And I, I think I think this is, you know, in, in that case, it wasn't just even a, a few bad apples. It was it was institutional that this was a political prosecution. And so the regular rules didn't apply. Uh, and, and I think there's you know, uh, again, maybe I'm sounding sort of overly libertarian. I'm not saying that Trump hasn't done plenty of shady things. Um, 
But however, whatever shady things he does, that's sort of aside from the point of um, the the uh, civil civil protections that that you're due. Uh, under the constitution. Sure. Yeah, I think that that's a that's an important point to make and it's so to me again it 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 is somewhat oversimplistic to say who do you trust the justice department or or president Trump and I think you make a good point about protections potential you know needing and I'm to not saying, and, and I, my my thing my point is I, I don't trust either really. Well, see I, I that's where um, I, more, that's where you and I part ways. to have a, a hedge against the justice department than against Donald Trump. That's where you and I part ways a little bit. You know, and also I think we should talk about a story that hit just after we finished prepping this week's show, which is at least somewhat related to this. Oh, before we do that, though, I wanted to mention, though, a lot of people are kind of, including the president, are sort of conflating the Cohen raid and the Mueller and the Mueller investigation. They're, they're two separate things. This is de- right. being handled by. And so just wanted to point that out. But although although the evidence showed that this was the information which was used by the uh, AUSA to get the warrant was provided by Mueller to them. Right. He passed it along basically, and then they handled it separately. So I, I also want to point out though, this is related, sort of related story is the department of justice's inspector general released a port a report uh, concluding that former FBI deputy director, Andrew McCabe lied to investigators about his role in leaking a story to the wall street journal about the Hillary Clinton investigation, including lying to former director, James Comey, who's in the news, news this week because of his new book. Um, now, the president's tweet response to this is worth is worth reading. Um, uh, DOJ just issued the McCabe report, which is a total disaster. He lied, <laughs> lied, lied. McCabe was totally controlled by Comey. McCabe is Comey. No collusion. All made up by this den of thieves and lowlifes, which, OK, in light of what's in the actual report, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, I mean, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and actually, the, the president could have made uh, could have done uh, Again, if I'm if I'm putting on my purely Machiavellian hat, he could have done a lot more damage you know? with a much better tweet. Exactly, saying, saying that look, uh, according to the report, either McCabe's lying or Comey's lying. Uh, that would have made more sense. FBI, exactly. FBI broken. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Yeah, but Bad. he. I think that was just obviously a clearly emotional tweet that doesn't make a lot of sense. No, but what it does do is it sort of upends a narrative of at least some on the left that McCabe was sort of unfairly railroaded out of the FBI by a president who was determined to destroy the leadership of the agency. Now, I believe certainly that the president is determined to destroy the leadership of the agency, <laughs> but the McCabe thing, it seems pretty, I mean, his, his attorney, of course, is saying that this is, you know, this is unfair and they disagree with the conclusions of the report and that sort of thing. But this idea that this proves uh, that McCabe and Comey were part of this, you know, uh, uh, cabal trying to destroy the the president. Maybe there were two separate cabals. Maybe you could make that argument, you know, right. if you're if you're. Well, yeah, if Trump, anybody, but... if, if anything, I mean, if, if what the report tells us, it it would appear that um, if McCabe is a victim, uh, if if he is not to be believed, then it's it's Comey who threw him under the bus. Yeah, but and and the IG seems to say that that isn't really how it. Right, out, and, and the IG says, says that Comey uh, appears to be more credible for a whole number of reasons um, on these issues. But actually, I mean, I think the report's actually kind of fascinating and, and worth reading, and someone posted it to our, our Facebook page. So, check, yeah, check it out. It's 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 fun reading. It's it's horribly confusing too. I think um, that there's a lot going on. Well, and it, it, there's this there's this whole culture, and you know, a lot of people may not realize this whole culture of leaks and how leaking works and strategic yeah. leaking and everyone does it and it only becomes an issue when you're when you're sort of caught doing it. i mean there's there are there are authorized leaks there are sort of wink wink authorized leaks yeah. and the whole runs the whole gamut this is how government works for a and lot this, of yeah, reasons the, the gist of this of course came down to uh mccabe's story was uh comey okayed me to leak this uh or to tell the the special uh, counsel to leak this uh and comey says no i didn't uh, and then, you know, McCabe's, and so that's, regardless, I, I think you read the report, uh, I, I think McCabe comes out as, as having changed his story a number of times. Um, so, and, but, but of course the president saying McCabe is totally controlled by Comey. That's exactly yeah, what the report exactly. says. So doesn't it? It's like he didn't read the report. Yeah. There's a, there's a shock. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, it is time for what we're reading where we step back from all this crazy stuff that's happening in the news cycle and talk about those more in-depth, thoughtful things that we're reading or sometimes listening to or watching. Uh, do you want to start us off today, Jay? 
I am. And it's going to be something kind of goofy and, and really non-political. Um, just because sometimes I, I, I'm a big believer. I, you know, I, as you know, I, a student of American literature. Absolutely. Sort of like trying to get the, look for like, again, the soul of, of America. He's a renaissance so, man. He really I is. Am. I am. Um, but, uh, so what, what I've been reading lately, uh, are, uh, short stories of Damon Runyon. Ooh, I um, like him. Yeah. And again, Damon Runyon wrote, uh, again, early part of the 20th century, uh, and it's it's all these stories of Broadway in New York in the uh, the 20s and 30s, uh, and uh, you know it is you know the musical Guys and Dolls um, is based on Damon Runyon uh, stories, and it's all these sort of shady characters who are also uh, comical, uh, but but the writing style is 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 really just fun. Oh yeah, and and if you read it, here's the thing. This is what what hit me that you know I hadn't really occurred to me before. It's very Trumpian. Hmm. Uh, there is very, the very, the, the way Runyon writes, it, it's very much in the, the Trumpian rhythm. There's the, and I think, again, this is this New York kind of, kind of thing, um, where it's, you know, you start off with a story and then you have this sort of break, break into, um, you know, these, these funny asides of the, you know, this, you know, again, happy to be here in Pennsylvania where I own, own many beautiful properties and, you know, this sort of, and there's, there's this sort of, um, again, tough guy, gangster-esque kind of kind of language to it that that's really is, is reminiscent of Trump. And the other thing that is reminiscent of Trump with uh, Runyon is everybody has a nickname. Right. Um, that's you know right. I mean? yes. yes. Everybody is sort of this, you know, whatever, uh, Bookie Joe, Fast Eddie, uh, uh, Shorty. And, and again, I, I'm just, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that Trump necessarily re- reads, uh, reads this or modeled himself after it. But, but again, I think it's just interesting. This is one of those things that's sort of in the water, if you will, of, of, uh, uh, of American literature and language, and and it, it sort of shows up here. I mean, a hundred, you know, not quite, not really a hundred years, but almost hundred years after after that was written. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That that's weird. I am a, I am a huge fan of 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 Damon Runyon. I've read his short stories and Guys and Dolls. I actually, I uh, actually have seen it uh, on Broadway twice. Uh, there was a revival in the '90s, and then one. See, you wouldn't think of that, would you? That you're you're a big uh, Broadway guy. Oh, you know, I'm not really, but I I love I, I love Guys and Dolls. Uh, like I said, I got to see it. Uh, in in the '90s revival, I was actually very disappointed because at, at that point uh, the the lead role was was played by uh, uh, was played by I was going to say Nathan Detroit, but Nathan Lane actually was playing the lead role. And then uh, right before, like a week or so before I went to see it in New York, it was changed, and the lead role ended up he, he ended up being replaced by Jamie Farr. It was very disappointing. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, I, but then I got to see it in London, and it was amazing. Got to sit in the front row, and, and it was astonishingly good. And then I saw another revival of it on Broadway later on. So I'm a huge fan. Uh, uh, great, great stuff. And that's a, that's a great recommendation. So my recommendation for this week. Recently, uh, Sam Harris and Ezra Klein did a podcast. It was, oh it was the most fascinating and frustrating couple of hours that I've spent with a podcast in a long, long time. They had this whole thing about, uh, about Charles Murray. Uh, Clay, basically, Harris right. had Murray on his pocket. We've talked about Murray before. Right. Essentially, uh, uh, I'm Har- a big fan of Charles Murray. Yeah, I, I know you are. And basically, Sam Harris said uh, in his podcast with Murray, which he called Forbidden Knowledge, it's very worth uh, checking out, that he said, well, you know, I always had this idea of Charles Murray, that he was this evil kind of racist guy. And I've actually, I stayed away from him and association with him. And then I decided I'd actually read the bell curve. And he said, well, based on that, I all of a sudden had a whole different view of Charles Murray, and I wanted him on the show. I feel he's been unfairly maligned. There was a the whole thing about Middlebury College where I got you know, uh, basically pushed off the stage and that sort of thing, and people being assaulted and that sort of thing. And it was really fascinating because uh, Ezra Klein and Vox responded by saying Sam Harris is essentially supporting this, this, this racist guy, basically. Uh, and they went back and forth, and they got very, very snippy and so forth. And it was a, a fascinating fascinating discussion. And Harris's, I think, really important point is that conservatives can have legitimate policy disagreements with liberals without conservatives being unsympathetic or downright evil. We talked about this with the Paul Ryan thing, and that's the yeah. sort of thing that just drives me nuts. Uh, you know, and, and the, it was sort of that that's what Harris was, I'm sorry, that's what Klein was pointing out, saying, well, Murray is coming from a place of racial animus. And and uh, Harris was saying, well, 
okay, maybe he is and maybe he isn't, but the data is the data. And it's one thing to talk about who Charles Murray is as a person, and it's another thing to critique his data and his methods and his conclusion. And it was like Klein was not hearing that. And Harris's point was saying, well, you know, so many people on the left seem to be willing to ignore good evidence and accept bad arguments for the sake of an ideological goals that they've decided are, you know, lofty or important or morally good or something like that. And, and I thought that was dead on. I think Vox does that all the time. And, and much of my, you know, my friends on the left sometimes do that. It's, you know, not arguing in good faith and seriously considering new evidence. It drives me nuts, basically. Uh, I, you know, it happens on the left and the right. But of course, most of the media, I, I listen to a lot of media on the right. But of course, when, it, when your side is being intellectually dishonest, it hurts even more because you want to hold your side to a higher standard. Um, but, you know, I also think that Klein made some good points about Harris. Uh, and sometimes Sam Harris just drives me nuts because he has this sort of, uh, he has this sort of, you know, I am this above it all sort of objective scientist type of person. And I can, I have access to a truth that you don't because I don't get sucked into your debates. And, you know, and Klein's point was, well, we're all coming to this from a point of view and, and you need to recognize that. And it occurred to me that they both have these frames, you know, that they're in, uh, you know, uh, Ezra Klein sees himself as this sort of, I think, pragmatic, analytical, progressive, I don't know, it goes too far to call him a social justice warrior. He's and, pretty highlight of himself. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, <laughs> you know, and Harris sees himself as this, this this passionate, scientific truth teller, that sort of thing. And what what bothers me about both of them uh, is that neither of them is particularly good at getting outside of those frames. And they talk past each other. Sam Harris does this all the time. So does Ezra Klein. Drives me nuts. Listen to Harris's interview with Jordan Peterson for a great example of this or many of the religious folks that Sam Harris has interviewed. And it occurred to me that, you know, that we all do this. I think you and I maybe even do this. I mean, a big part of my identity here is uh, a reasonable bipartisan with a contrarian streak. And I think because that's my identity and because that's why we started the show in part is I tend to look for points of agreement and occasionally I look for ways that I might kind of break off from my party's orthodoxy and things. And that, that definitely influences how I see the world. And, you know, I also think it part comes from the fact that I started off on the right and now I'm on the center left. And, and I'm guessing, Jay, you know, you probably have an identity along those lines too that influences how you see these things. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, and, and again, I, I come from the, um, you know, my ideal of, of, you know, conservative thought was, was sort of, you know, William F. Buckley and uh, sort of that George Will school that, uh, again, the the willingness to debate uh, in good faith, engage intellectually, um, uh, you know, not not saying you, you give up your side, but but you you uh, you argue in good faith and make a good attempt to understand where the other side's coming from and address their arguments uh, on the merits where they are. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. But what frustrates and me— And not just say, like, you know, he's a racist. Exactly. You know, so. Well, and what frustrates me for so much of this on the left and the right is that there, there are these sort of faux— discussions where they're not about getting at the truth. They're not about actually listening and considering these points. They're, okay, here is, I am, I am going to this to win this argument. And that's much more important than finding out what the truth or, you know, approaching the truth. And I think so many of these people, especially these very smart people who, of course, you know, think very highly of themselves, as both Klein and Harris do, is they are so loath to, to concede a point. And that's not even I, I think that's it's so difficult for them to even contemplate that they do end up talking past each other. And it's it's something that it has nothing to do with intelligence. I think it's just this idea that, well, the important thing here is winning the argument for my side. And that, you know, that I don't think should be the important thing. And I'd like to think that you and I try to push back against that. And we do try to listen to each other and sort of, you know, see where the other side might have a reasonable point. Yeah. Well, I think it's maybe less in, about intelligence, more just a bit hubris. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, kind of having know, a sort of humility. Personal maybe, of the, yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's easier to do. If you're kind of Midwestern folks who didn't graduate from Harvard. <laughs> Two jokers doing a Saturday morning podcast well, well, you know, than if you're Ezra Klein. <laughs> seriously, I mean, I think there's that whole, and this is part of that obviously conservative critique against, you know, the, the so-called coastal elites and so forth. But these people who, you know, 
think that they are, they have some, you know, privileged access to the truth, whether they're people on the left or the right who don't really have the experience of going to, you know, good but not great schools and not being raised in kind of that 1% sort of bubble, if you will. And I do think that that gives them a sort of a skewed view on both the right and the left of, of what's really going on. And, you know, and so I'm practically going to have to dislo- re- undislocate my shoulder from patting ourselves on the back here. But I think at least when we're at our best, that's what we can, you know, at least try to provide an antidote to that. So, uh, yay for us. Uh, okay. Yay for us. All right. On and, that- and, and people should go, should go read the bell curve and coming apart and make their own conclusions. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. You know, listener support is what keeps the show going. We truly appreciate it. So if you'd like to help us out, go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link. Or you can just go to politicsguys.com and go to support in the main menu, or just click on those paper, Patreon or PayPal links that you'll see there. Subscribing to the show also really helps us, as does sharing episodes. So it'd be great if you could do that. It's easy to do. Just hit that little triangle thingy, share, whatever. You know, because word of mouth is really the best advertising. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes really does help. If you want to get in touch with us, you know how to reach us. It's mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page where you can message us and where there are some really great discussions, I think, throughout the week. Uh, and so if you've already given up your privacy and bought into the Facebook thing, <laughs> as, as I have, it's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.